So today we're continuing our studies for the period of Lent by looking at Genesis chapter 2. We're going to look in turn at the seventh day, God's day of rest, then the paradise that God has created and some of its component parts, the garden, Adam, Eve, and finally we'll touch a wee bit on paradise lost, looking ahead to Genesis 3. So first of all, the seventh day. At the start of chapter 2, we're told that on the sixth day, God's work of creation is complete, and that on the seventh day, he rests. What God God resting would look like is difficult to know, but his work of creation is vast, it's huge, the heavens and the earth. It's an impressive display, a hugely impressive display. The display we can capture a little of when, as, as Lionel was saying last week, we look up into the stars on a clear night, or when we look at images sent back from satellites or spaceships, but we can only catch a glimpse of this vastness. And now, on the seventh day, God stops and takes a break from creating. God is eternal. He is without beginning and without end. He always was, he always is, he always will be, but he is not always creating. He's not eternally creator. He was not creating before he made the heavens and the earth. Then he simply was being with himself in the harmonious set of loving relationships that communed within his self as Father and as Son and as Holy Spirit. As we considered a few months ago when we studied the Holy Spirit, never is the Father found without the Son and the Holy Spirit. He was not creating then, he was simply being. And he's not created since. Though as Father, Son and Holy Spirit, he has been active in time and space, he has not added to the things he created in the course of those six days. God is eternal, God is the creator, but he is not eternally creator. Not that he couldn't be all the time creating if he chose. And God did not create out of necessity or out of a sense of boredom or loneliness. God was complete and all-sufficient in himself. He did not need to create the heavens and the earth or us or anything else to satisfy some unmet need within himself. He was altogether fulfilled within his own being. He created the heavens and the earth to share something of his loving being and to display the wonder of his internal relationships through this external universe of his own design. Genesis gives us an account then of the time when the eternal God is the creator God, bringing into being the whole cosmos and the earth among its many jewels. And he creates all this vast array of heavens and the earth out of nothing. Not out of thin air, because that would imply that there was something there that could be called thin air, out of which he made what he made. As one theologian puts it, when we say God created everything out of nothing, we are not saying that there was this stuff called nothing that God started to use to make everything. We are saying 
we are saying that he did not make the universe out of anything. Instead, God simply spoke. And when he spoke, the things he spoke about became the things he told them to be. Let there be light, and then there was light. Let there be, let there be across all the six days all the things I want there to be, and there they were, and there they are. And then God took a rest from speaking things into creation from nothing. And he made that seventh day a special day, a holy day of joy and celebration of what had been accomplished. For out of nothing, he had created nothing less than paradise. What follows in chapter 2 is the story of God's creation of, on the sixth day. It's a story already told in chapter 1, but it's now told from a different point of view, with special attention paid to the earthly paradise he has created. Paradise, it's an evocative word, a word that conjures up a whole range of things to all sorts of different people. And I wonder what it's maybe conjuring up in your own head at the moment when you think of paradise. If you're Kenny Hamilton or lots of people like him, it mean, might mean something like this. Or if you're more sensible, like me, it might mean walking for the first time through the doors of Birdland Jazz Club in New York. For one of the most remarkable people I have known in my whole life, a man called Willie, paradise meant Aloha. But more of that later. For the Bible, however, paradise is not Aloha. It is the Garden of Eden a garden watered by the river Eden, which then splits into four headwaters, as Moira read for us. A garden, if we take the clues of the Tigris and the Euphrates, located roughly in the part of the Middle East we now know as Iraq. The Garden of Eden, God's created paradise, doesn't necessarily equate with notions of paradise we might carry about in our own minds exactly. It is a garden. It's not a beach or a palace of any sort, not a building of any sort. It's a place, a place of natural beauty. It's a fertile garden, well watered, containing many trees of all kinds, beautiful trees, good to look at, producing good fruit, delightful to eat. And it's a populated garden, populated not just by human beings, but by the teeming variety of the birds of the air, and the teeming variety of the wild and domestic animals that God has created in the course of the fifth and sixth days. God's paradise is fertile nature in all the full possibility and abundance of its rich diversity. The pinnacle of the perfection of God's paradise is his creation in Adam of a sinless humanity living in the freedom they have in God. That freedom being an eternal life of unhindered freedom in perfect health, without constraints of time or aging, without even the, the constraint of clothing. Let us make mankind, says God, and he does so, out of the dust of the ground, the dust of the ground he had created out of nothing. And then God does a 
marvelous thing. He animates humanity by breathing his own breath into the man's nostrils. We can't help but wonder at such a gentle and personal and intimate connection between the eternal life of God and the life of his human creature. It almost takes our breath away. But it's a reminder that, as we read last week, the human creature is made in the image and likeness of God. For then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. The human being is the created image of the uncreated God. But although God is uncreated and eternal spirit, we should remind ourselves that we're not created according to the image of some faceless, remote, or abstract God, but according to the image of the person of Christ, who is himself, as we read in Colossians, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And strangely, for our concept of paradise, in God's created paradise, humanity is given work to do. Maybe our sense of paradise is we'll be free of work for all time, but God makes us responsible for tending to the garden and for ensuring the dignity of all the living things that he has created. Human beings thus have a special place within the creation and a special responsibility for the common good of all creation. As we read in Psalm 8, verses 4 to 6, being created in the image of God is a great glory, but also a great responsibility. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him ruler over the work of your hands. You put everything under his feet. So Adam comes into the garden, and later then comes Eve. And another feature of the perfection of paradise is the relationship of God and the the relationship he creates between Adam and Eve, between man and woman. Having created mankind in his own image and likeness and having breathed life into it, God declares it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And then in the first recorded surgical operation, under some form of anesthetic he uses to put Adam to sleep, God makes a woman from a rib he has taken from the man's side. And once this making of the woman is complete, God brings Eve and Adam face to face with each other for the first time. Adam's reaction is one of unconditional acceptance of his helper. He identifies himself completely with her. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And many people over the years have read this passage as implying that woman is subordinate to man as she was created out of man and to be his helper. But there are at least a couple of reasons to believe that this is a misunderstanding. First of all, 
Eve is made of the same flesh and bone as Adam. She's made of the same human stuff God created and clothed humanity in. She's not a different type of creature made of different material. And it's also significant that God makes Eve from Adam's rib, almost indicating that man and woman are joined at the hip in order that they might stand side by side in a relationship of equality and mutual support. Above all, however, it's the nature of the support that God intends Eve to bring to Adam that suggests that there can be no question of woman being subordinate to man in this relationship. God created woman to be man's helper. And the Hebrew word used, which we translate as helper, is the word Ezer. I think that's how you pronounce it. This is a word that occurs 21 times in the Old Testament. Twice in reference to Eve here in Genesis 2, and thrice in reference to powerful nations Israel calls upon for help when it is under siege. But in all the 16 remaining instances where the word is used, Ezer refers to the type of help that God gives when we are helpless and God draws alongside us in our time of need. That's the meaning of the word Ezer. Because God is not subordinate to any of his creatures, the idea that an Ezer helper like Eve is inferior to Adam cannot really be supported. One writer puts it this way, um, a man called Philip Payne in a book, Man and Woman, One in Christ. The noun used here, Ezer, throughout the Old Testament, does not suggest helper as in servant, but help, saviour, rescuer, protector, as in God is our help. In no other occurrence in the Old Testament does this refer to an inferior, but always to a superior or an equal. Help expresses that the woman is a help and strength who rescues or saves man. So without Eve, Adam is only the half the human he is meant to be. Eve is not an add-on optional extra for an otherwise self-sufficient Adam. Adam, on his own, is not good in God's eyes. God's intention is that man and woman should be equal partners in the stewardship of his creation. On the seventh day, God rested. He knew that what he had created was good. He knew that it was perfect. A perfect paradise of natural diversity, fertile life, informed and sustained by his boundless love and generosity and overseen by the man he had so gently and personally animated with his own breath and by the woman he had specially created to be his God-given sustainer. Whatever became of that paradise, we're now compelled to ask. For this ideal world that we've been thinking about as described in Genesis, this ideal world God created, is not the world we experience in day-to-day life today. Why is the world we know and live in today as imperfect as God's created paradise was perfect then? 
Why in the world we inhabit do Auschwitz and Belsen coexist with examples of heroic love and compassion? Why is the devastation of Dresden part of the same world as the beauty of the mountains and lochs and rivers? Why do we live in a world where the invasion of Ukraine shares time and space with the liberating joys of music and the wonder of a new child? Why is the natural balance of the creation God created us to protect now in mortal danger? The answer given in Genesis is to do with our disobedience. At the center of the garden, God had planted two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he had given us clear instructions that the only thing we shouldn't do was to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And of course, that was the very thing we did do, as we will consider next week in Genesis 3. Humanity, living with the freedom of will God has allowed them, is free to make its choices, to determine its own fate. And it's a freedom that will ultimately prove to be more than they and we could safely handle. St. Paul's understanding that perfect freedom is found only in perfect obedience to God eludes Eve and Adam when put to the test. We disobeyed God and the consequences were disastrous. Paradise was lost and God's perfect world was compromised. And as a result, our human experience becomes the constricted mixture of joys and sorrows with which we all become familiar in the course of our lives. Life lived in the shadow of death. We must now return in closing to think about this a wee bit more to Aloha of all places, Willie's Paradise. Willie was, when I met him in the 1980s, a man in his mid-50s living in a borders town, a four-block house he shared with two other people. He was a man with a mild learning disability, a joker, a storyteller, a great raconteur and wit. He was born and grew up in Aloha and lived there happily with his mum and dad and initially his sister well into his 40s. When he left school, he got a job in the local bottle factory and continued to be loved and cared for by his family. Paradise, as Willie would insist on having it. Until the time came when, after his parents died in quick succession, his personal paradise was suddenly lost, and he found himself taken from his house and his job, and taken at first to a huge impersonal institution. It was only after several other sudden dislocations in his life over which he had no control that I first met him. One night I was dropping the great joker Willie off at his house and he started to tell me one of his jokes, or so I thought. If you were part of the team building the Great Wall of China, he said, what do you think they would do with you if you took ill? Waiting for the punchline to the joke, I merely replied, I don't know, Willie, what did they do if you were working on the Great Wall of China and you took ill? Well, said Willie, they just built the wall over the top of you. Slow on the uptake and still waiting for the punchline, I'm reduced to silence. Then, said Willie, and sometimes I think that's what happened to my life.
And ever since God's paradise was lost through our disobedience, that experience of being crushed, that experience of being buried alive, of being dead in the midst of life, of being alive while living in the valley of the shadow of death, that has been the universal human experience, the universal human condition. Death and decay in all around we see. But as we turn our attention now to the Lord's table, we especially give God grateful thanks for the good news of Jesus that assures us that, unlike the head gaffer of the Chinese wall builders, God doesn't just leave us there in that predicament, but has lifted instead the rubble from round about us, lifted us out of the pit. He has already rescued us and saved us, and has already lifted us up to be with him in the perfection of his new heaven and his new earth.